0: The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected Convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond.
1: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Max Sroda, and I'm a junior political science major and philosophy minor here at Carleton. It's my really great pleasure this morning to introduce today's convocation speaker, Professor Staffan Lindbergh. Professor Lindbergh is one of the foremost scholars of democracy in the world today. He's the founding director of the Varieties of Democracy Institute and a principal investigator of the Varieties of Democracy Project, otherwise known as VDEM. He's also a professor of political science at the University of Gothenburg, where he has authored dozens of books articles and chapters on topics ranging from democratization and autocratization to political institutions, representation, and more. VDEM, which Professor Lindbergh helps to direct, provides some of the most comprehensive measures of democracy in the world, facilitating essential research on democracy, and allowing us to understand the ways that it has flourished and declined over time. I've personally cited his work and employed VDEM's data in my own research and coursework here at Carleton as I've sought to understand processes driving autocratization and ways to create democratic resilience. Today, Professor Lindbergh's work is more relevant than ever. According to VDEM, in 2022, democracy fell to the same level as in 1986. Only a decade ago, less than half of the world's population lived under autocratic rule. But today, almost three quarters live in some form of autocracy. What's more, things do not seem to be getting better. Only 14 countries saw the state of their democracies improve in 2022, while a record 42 saw their democracy worsen. This crisis of democracy is not a regional phenomenon, but a global one. It is happening in South and Southeast Asia, in Latin America and Eastern Europe, in West and Southern Africa, and here in the United States. Professor Lindbergh's work is a vital first step to understanding and then combating the growing wave of autocratization that we face today. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Lindberg to Carleton.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for that, I would say too kind, too kind introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today uh, to address you at this convocation. Um, students of Carleton, faculty, colleagues, friends, um, distinguished ladies and gentlemen. For the students, and maybe others as well, um, I would like to start with some remarks that are more personal reflections. I think it's important for you as students to um, remember that career paths comes in plural. Or at least can come in plural. They don't have to last forever. Um, In my own case, I actually was about to become a hockey player. I played at elite level in Sweden. um, Up and as a sort of level below the, the the adult teams, um, we call it junior, but, um, and I got my knee injured and that sort of gave me time to reflect and decide I wanted to do something else after all. Then um, I ended up doing, in high school, doing a lot of theater. And actually had a career for six years, then as a youth, uh, youth actor, then sort of runner, and then eventually stage manager and director assistant for film, TV shows, and some theater plays. Um, <clears throat> and it was fun. It was good money in the TV and business, um, but it wasn't enough in terms of, sort of, for me, in terms of, for lack of a better word, this pretentious save the world, right? Um, and in between there, mixed in between, I also had a stint as a leader of a youth movement. Um, and and that engagement, I guess, goes back to this. This is the Berlin Wall. When they started building it. At this time, my father was a young man. It imprinted on him. He came to spend most of his life with, well, he, he went down that. As many of you maybe will, or some of you will do that go to law school path. But then ended up using that to, broadly speaking, promote justice um, in Sweden and abroad. And then, um, this is also the Berlin Wall, 1989. 7th September, oh, November. Many of you, well, you, the the students, you were not born at this time, I guess so. But um, it feels like a recent past to some of us who are a little bit older. Uh, The youth movement that I was one of the leaders for, we started a few years earlier it had, some others have started in, back in 87 and so on, but I worked with it in 88 and 89. And what we eventually did was we set out to challenge at the time, Gorbachev's Perestroika and Glasnost. And say that we the young people, we don't accept that there is an Iron Curtain. We don't accept that You have created the old generations. You have created a world for us where we cannot meet and be friends with other young people on the other side of that wall. So it was called Next Stop Soviet. And in September 1989, um, we had 356 projects. Could be rock bands playing together from... Uh, Nordic countries together with some Soviet youth and, and playing together in different places in Soviet Union. We arranged demonstrations and we did a whole bunch of things that you couldn't do in Soviet Union, typically, to tear down that wall. And trying to do something about the world that was about bringing basic human rights and democratic freedoms to us as young people across now today there are new walls being built up i'm sure i'm sure you've heard about people talking about the new cold war or a multipolar world Um, With guys like these, Chavez, now deceased, Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary, of course. Big guy up there, Putin in Russia. Um, But all part of this, what we have labeled a third wave of autocratization, where... Human rights, especially for women, or yeah, um, and democratic rights are being challenged, undermined, and people are being divided up increasingly, both within countries, in us versus them, between countries, in enemies and allies. I see the, the challenge to democracy in the world as part of this, not new, but renewed struggle for freedom in the world. At the Institute, we, every year we write this democracy report. This is the last year's democracy report, defiance in the face of autocratization. And I'm going to give you some highlights here today. And I think the introduction here sort of tried to talk about that what defiance can mean in a different way. What you can do to show defiance. That's weird. Okay, you have to bear with the mic. So, where are we in 2022? We're here. We're back to where we were before I was young and did that next Soviet. 1986 was the year when Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan met in Reykjavik to discuss the end of the Cold War. Here's how the evidence looks like. So this is a graph showing you, with our liberal democracy index, the development of the last 50 years. Um, the black line there in the middle is the um, average for the world. And then uh, different regions. And so you can see these uh, all downward trends and this big downward trend in the world. This is, if you draw a line like this back, You end up in 1986. This is our population-weighted measure. So countries in the world, their level of democracy averaged but weighted for the size of the population. A a lot of the time you see graphs over different things, including democracy, um, over time by country averages. So just the countries average straight that's also weighting it's weighting the average based on that a territory has a government one government it also means for example that the seashells with 90,000 inhabitants give as much get as much weight in the average as india with 1.4 billion people. And that's fine for certain purposes, but if we want to know how much democracy there is in the world, I think seashells matters a little less than India. And after all, democracy is ruled by the people, so it matters how many people are affected by a certain level of democracy. Right? So that's what you see here, and by this, um, the entire that explosion of democratic rights and human rights and freedoms that we saw especially after the end of the Cold War in the 90s has just been, on a global scale, eradicated. Of course, some countries are doing better today than they were in 1989, or 99, uh, 90, yeah, or 95, or whatever year you want to pick. But on the global scale, this is how it looks. We can take the same data and we can divide it. It's the same underlying data, but then divide it in or sort of use it to categorize country into these, what I think is now um, largely sort of standard categorization in comparative politics, at least. So close autocracies, if you think of Saudi Arabia, North Korea, that sort of thing, or electoral autocracies that hold multi-party elections, but either the elections are not good enough or the surrounding environment that make the elections meaningful, like media freedom, freedom of speech, civil society can be free and act, and you can have demonstrations and that sort of thing. That's not good enough. So they try to look like democracies, but they're not. Think Turkey today. Even though the prime minister of my country has declared that Turkey is a democracy, and I don't know what data they look at. Um, Has something to do with the NATO process, I think. But, um, and then you have electoral democracies, sort of they are okay, and then liberal democracies, really good democracies, okay. So then the data looks like this, it's sort of similar, so you, 1972 again, this big drop in the, in the closed autocracies, they used to be the, the, the most common regime type in the world. The world used to be in the 70s full of closed dictatorships, right? And then they were almost getting extinct, right, we were going to put them on the red list to save them. But, um, now they're picking up again, and meanwhile, the number of liberal democracies are going down. And much of what happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s, what the, the world got a lot of electoral autocracies. And if you put these two types of uh, non-democracies together, then 72% of the world population live in those countries. 72%. Okay, it's affecting all aspects of democracy, no matter how you define it. So we are varieties of democracy, we have different democracy indices with different emphasis on different things, but here's a graph with components of democracy. So you have sort of the elections that uh, should be clean, but you also have freedom of expression. You have these things with judicial constraints on the executive, and, freedom of association, things like that. So this graph shows the number of countries 10 years ago, at the end of 2012, number of countries the last 10 years that had been either improving on these components or declining, all statistically significant changes and so on. So clean elections, for example, in 2012 had been improving in 24 countries, and only declining in eight. So if you're above that diagonal line, right, things are getting better in more countries than in getting worse. That was 10 years ago. Now look at the situation today at the end of 2022. Boom. Below the line. And worst of all out there, freedom of expression. That's also where you have media freedom and deliberation, the quality of debate, respect for counter arguments, respect for your political opponents. You can think, I usually say, this is America, but I'll say it anyway. I usually say that if you think of Donald Trump, he's sort of the antithesis of deliberative democracy. Okay? Um, this also gives you an indication of where often wannabe dictators start. Freedom of expression media and um, use of freedom of expression. Okay. Um, I look at the countries that are in change, the countries behind these figures. First of all, we notice this. We now have a record number of countries that are autocratizing, 42. the data looks like this, again, for the last 50 years. So the blue line here is democratizing countries, right? So at every year, looking 10 years back, which countries have been improving or, or, or uh, declining. Up and um, wrong button. And here is the, re- the democratizing countries, right? And here is the end of the Cold War. and It goes up, and it's like 71 countries at the same time. That's the time when we were happy, right? You remember that time. We were looking forward to the future, like democracy was expanding everywhere. Oh, boom, down to 14. It's less than 2% of the world population live in those 14 countries. They're tiny, small countries. And meanwhile, here, number of countries autocratizing the end of the second wave of autocratization, and then down was almost nothing, and then Chavez and Russia, uh, sorry, Putin started, and then more and more countries, and look at this trend now, up to 42. And you have 43% of the world population living in countries going back on democracy, um, up drastically in this last 10 years. And in view, of the, in view of both the illegal invasion of Ukraine by Putin's Russia, and now also perhaps should add the war between Israel and Hamas, this will happen. We will have more armed conflict. We know that. Where's the IR faculty? Here you go. Immanuel Kant, right? The theory of democratic peace. Democracies don't fight wars with each other. And that's been shown over and over again now, also with the VDAM data. It shows the same results. Democracies don't fight wars with each other. That's the probability curve of engaging in armed conflict on the sort of electoral democracy, if you like. Uh, So if you're high on electoral democracy, the probability is essentially nothing, and then it goes up. Um, That's Russia. Before Putin came into power, and then when he invaded, if Russia had stayed as democratic, they were no Biden. In 1994 was maybe the high point of democracy in, 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 in Russia. It wasn't at all a perfect democracy, far from it. But he said they had stayed at that at least limited level, it would never have invaded Ukraine. You know that. The more we also know other things, so these guys were behind these studies uh, calculate the probability of India engaging in armed conflict with Pakistan as a result of India's autocratization episode under Moody and BGP and there um, increased by 300% roughly, the probability of that happening. So. The wave of autocratization leading to more countries not being democracies is going to mean more armed conflict. Okay, which ones are we talking about? Which one? Here's the top 10 list that you don't want to be on. Um, In the perspective of the last 10 years, which countries have autocratized the most, regardless of where they started? the magnitude of change, right? Brazil, Poland, Mauritius, Hungary, India, Serbia, Tunisia, and so on, and Turkey. I don't know what the Swedish government is looking at, but it's definitely not uh, a democracy. Um, What I want you to, and then the same thing in the three years' perspective, so that's more like the ones that have changed the most recently, Uh, so partly different countries. We worry about what's going on in Greece, for example, right now, but let's focus on this. All of them were democracies 10 years ago. Seven out of 10 is one form or the other of autocracy today. That's a fatality rate of 70%, right? 70%. And it looks very similar even in the three years' perspective, and it looks similar if we, look, we looked at this in a, this is an academic journal article In democratization, we looked at all episodes of autocratization starting in democracies since 1900. No matter how we slice this data, 77% lead to democracy breaking down. So just a statistical probability that if you start an episode of autocratization, you will survive as a democracy is very slim which should um, be of special concern, not the least for you and this country because you have had an episode of autocratization. It's sort of um, maybe paused a little bit. But we've seen that before, sort of. So I'm worried, I think you should be worried. Now we also look in this year's report on the relationship between disinformation, polarization, and autocratization. And we've looked at this in different ways actually in the last three years' reports. I'm going to show some evidence from both from all three. Here's from the latest year's report. So the graph here is about spread of disinformation by the government, so only the government. Um, 2000 comparing countries, 2012 to 2022. If you're above the line, things have gotten worse. There is more spread of disinformation. <coughs> and the red bar countries are autocratizing countries. Right, and then you have the same for political polarization: 2022, 2022. Above the line, it's gotten worse. Red countries are autocratizing. Right, so you can see where those are, and how many countries in the world that are where this is getting worse. And then, the pattern with its relationship toward organization looks something like this. So here are five of the top 10 autocratizing countries, um, and you see indicators of polarization here uh, go up, and then democracy goes down. This also shows out in things like this, sort of simple comparison of means. Autocratizing countries, yes, government disinformation, polarization go up. In democratizing countries, goes down. Now this kind of evidence and along now there are I don't know how many comparative case studies of countries that are autocratizing and this with polarization and disinformation it tells me a story wannabe dictators and autocrats want to make things even more autocratic. They spread increasingly disinformation. And they have their support troops, the Infowars and the like to spread this information. They do this with a purpose. They know it works. It works to increase polarization. Because when you have polarization up, and you know this in your country, to a level that we've labeled toxic, toxic polarization, the point where you can start to talk about your political opponents as enemies enemies of who we are enemies of our way of life have you heard that Hmm? here comes it enemies of the nation because what do you do with enemies of the nation well you can start with like erdogan used to do in turkey close down their media and civil society organizations Putin liked to kill some of them, just to make an example. Enemies of the nation doesn't have rights. And you are entitled to curtail their rights and freedoms. That's the beginning of autocracy, ladies and gentlemen. And they know it works, because it, if... They can make you feel afraid of the other side and that they are enemies of the nation and you become fearful of them undermining everything that you cherish and then you will start to support the leader undermining those rights and freedoms for those people. That's what Orban has been doing in Hungary. That's what Modi is doing with his Hindu nationalism in, in uh, India and so on. Um, sometimes this is called populist politics. I don't think it's populism per se as a problem. A lot of sort of legitimate democratic parties around the world that are more or less populist, it's sort of a scale, a little bit more elitist, a little bit more sort of we are with the people kind of thing. And we've actually studied this. So we, Anna Lurman, my former deputy director, is now a deputy uh, or a deputy secretary of state in Germany. But um, <laughs> um, we put together a, a data set on parties and parties' policies and parties' actions and parties. It's called V Party, variety. So parties. Um, <clears throat> this was published in, I think, Washington Post before the last election in, 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 here in the U.S. Um, um, some graphics that, that built on this and some on this paper. It's now published in Party Politics. Um, <clears throat> where we measure the level of anti-pluralism, the level of sort of denying the l- legitimacy of your political opponents or minorities, um, of being open to use of political violence and that sort of thing. Anti-pluralism, right? Pluralism is at the heart of a free society, a democratic society. So here's some example with Peace and Fidesz and BJP, AKP and their development over time becoming more anti-pluralist while not shifting on the left-right sort of economic policy scale at all. And these countries, these parties, when they come into power, and then they start to derail democracy. So on this side, you have the electoral democracy index, and here the level of pluralism become more anti-pluralist, and then democracy levels go down. It shows up in sort of more statistical analysis, advanced analysis as well, very clear relationship between anti-pluralism and those parties exhibiting those characteristics, and then if, <coughs> if they come into power, they undermine democracy. Um, here is J.O.P. in the same scale, um, leading up here to the, the last elections. Um, and by our measures, the United States also have the same pattern with a polarization and, and spread of disinformation going up and liberal democracy index going down. It's not radical like Turkey or India, uh, but it's statistically significant. So, especially for the, maybe students, here at Carlton. Um, as I said in the beginning, here, I would be worried both about the world and about what's happening here in the United States. Um, and I, I hope your generation um, will prove to be wiser and take up the challenge um, to make sure that democracy survives in this country and is also supported abroad. Because if we leave this report in the last few minutes here, um, we could also ask ourselves Why do we have democracy? I mean, we have democracy because democracy is, in itself, a good thing, intrinsic values of democracy. And democracy offers a number of individual rights and freedoms that we cherish, think are good in themselves. I could add that I think it's the only political system we know of at the national level that at least seeks to provide what we call human dignity. But then there's a challenge out there in the world from China. After the first democracy summit that Biden pulled together, they put out a white paper, say, I think the title was something like China, the People's Republic of China, um, the only democracy that works. And then the argument is that they have pulled up so many people from poverty and they improved health and so on and so forth. And that's their model that they want to sell to the rest of the world. And that's what they're doing. And Qi has been very open about it, that the, 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 the long-term goal is China's domination of the world. They're trying to sell that with saying that their model of democracy hmm, uh, is doing better. Now, what does the evidence say? So we were asked to pull together. The request came basically from the European Commission and from USAID. Said we need a counter-narrative to China. Is there evidence for that? So I pulled together my team, and we, we... we spent a couple of years looking through the literature, not, I mean mainly not political science literature, uh, medicine, public health, economics, climate change, go down the line in the top journals of the world and the best sort of rigorous studies that we could find and pull together and see what they say across a number of, of issues. And There's some good news. Well, the bad news I already talked about, which is that the autocratization will lead to more wars. So democracy and having many countries in the world, preferably all countries in the world, be democratic, right, would also be an antidote to war. So there's a, for United States and other countries, there's also a security imperative about promoting democracy abroad. Uh, You can think, what you like about Ronald Reagan, but he had that one right, at least. Now, democracy is also providing higher economic growth. There's now tons of evidence, actually. And this has been debated, as we know, in political science, as it goes back to 1959, at least. But now, with the better data more sophisticated statistical methods, there is a growing consensus about that democracy produces growth. Here is Asimoglu and Robinson, for example, with their study using synthetic controls and all kinds of things, uh, comparing countries essentially to uh, what they would have been if they did not democratize, Um, and here's the point of democratization, and then uh, the average development after that as compared to if you had not democratized, indicating that you get within less than a generation a higher GDP per capita by 20%. That's quite substantial. There are other studies, just to give you one, um, looking here from oh, 1805, 1800s, yeah, to the 2000s. Um, the red one is the average economic growth for democracies; the black one for autocracies. You can see there is a difference. So democracies on average grow better, and also democracies avoid these sort of terrible economic disasters with great economic, negative economic growth, So it's also sort of a safety net. One of the problems is this. There's no evidence that democracies are better at lowering economic inequality. And that's been particularly true since the early 1980s, with the invention of Thatcherism and Reaganomics, and spread of that to the global south with the structural adjustment programs, the Washington Consensus, rising inequalities across the world, quite extremely so. Even in Sweden, where I come from, the socialist country in many Americans' minds, sorry, uh, the inequalities are, are at, at record levels. Right? It's never been as high in Sweden since we got democracy, the early 20th century. So that's something to think about. But democracy is also better at using this growth, right, for social protection. So Moorjede and his team, for example, in the Netherlands, a big team specializing on these things, uh, show that moving from a, a, a a full autocracy to a full democracy the spending on social protection increased by over hundred percent. That's pretty good. You could go down to public goods. Now, uh, a long series of studies showing uh, uh, that democracies and that democratization leads to better provision of public goods, which is what we would think democracy should do, right? If you don't have access to electricity, or you don't have access to safe water, and so on, you should vote for people who actually uh, do something about that, if that's a concern for you. And if they don't, you should throw the rascals out, right? And that's happening um, in, in many democracies across the world. Here is one uh, piece of evidence. This is uh, from a study looking at internet access with democracies and non-democracies, you can see there. Uh, that big difference. Democracy is also good for human health, um, and these are—I mean, these are some studies. For example, in the in the Lancet, the top one, and the other one is from the British Medical Journal. Now, an increasing body of literature showing, with very advanced statistical modeling, independent causal effects of democracy that, for many health outcomes, actually greater than increases in GDP per capita, which has otherwise been thought to be the main driver. Uh, life expectancy, but also that autocratization has the opposite effect, right? Here is one example of the, of the results with the life expectancy after a democratic transition compared to having no transition, right? And when it comes to infant mortality, the effects are almost astonishing, moving from a Really bad autocracy to a really good democracy, infant mortality on average declined by ninety-four percent. Ninety-four percent—that's kind of substantial. And democracies are better at prov- prov- providing uh, an advanced education. Again, lots of evidence. Here are some examples um, with. Uh, education enrollment and average years in education in autocracies versus democracies Um, and um, this goes especially for countries in the global south for example in Africa and in the rural parts of Africa so where education access to education should be sort of of greater concern among the many things we can be concerned with as parents for our kids, if education is really terrible or hard to access and so on, then it should be sort of higher on the priority list than if, ah, well, you know, there are many good schools around. And that's what's borne out in the data, right? The the more um, education is sort of a challenge, the higher priority it's got then the greater the effects also are of having democracy on providing that education. Autocrats don't have to care about your education, right? But again, it's hard to say anything about the quality, so this is about sort of volume. Um, but that's partly because measuring quality of education is really, really difficult, um, especially across countries. So it's unclear whether this sort of, Non-result is because of sort of issues with the data and being comparable, or that, or that democracies are, are not doing better there. Democracies provide better gender equality. That's almost per definition, right? Democracy is about political equality, and in the modern world, that includes political equality for women. Congratulations, great, that's a good thing, um, and um, so in terms of Political empowerment for women, representation for women, and so on. Democracies do far, far better. Uh, but even with climate change, there is now growing evidence that democracy actually has positive effects. For example, on the on the Paris Accord, um, democracy's commitment to mitigate, fight climate change is corresponds to a difference in minus 1.6 degrees globally, that's kind of big. Um, There's also this, I mean, studies showing sort of emissions for democracies going down, going up for autocracies um, and that sort of thing. But also that democracies are better in the sort of smaller scale on implementing actual mitigation. Uh, policies to uh, do things like improve air quality in cities and that sort of stuff. So there is a growing body also in the climate science community looking into this and showing that democracy actually has uh, dividends. We collected all this in a series of policy briefs because this was directed at not the academic community so much but at the policy practitioner community Uh, and they are available on the website just like the case for democracy report that we then pulled everything together and presented that was launched in D.C. here in uh, March this year. Uh, So that's the counter-narrative to China. China in the last 30 years or so um, is a historical exception among autocracy. Autocracy is typically, if you, if you think of it as, okay, you could, you could choose whether it to be autocracy or democracy. Choosing autocracy, you're much more likely to end up like Democratic Republic of Congo than China or Singapore. And China, by the way, wasn't their autocracy wasn't that successful under Mao Zedong, for example, and it's increasingly looking not so successful right now when she is going back to things that remind more of the Mao Zedong era. So um, democracy is not only good because of the freedoms we pro- that we get in a democracy. But those freedoms and our exercise of those freedoms, if we exercise them well, also have real effects on what the elected leaders actually do in office in terms of sort of providing things from economic growth, public health, uh, public goods, and, and mitigating climate change. So that's part of the good news. I wanted to have some good news here in this as well. So, uh, uh, Everything we do is available on the website. Here's the website. And for those who are uh, uh, not uh, inclined to download 32 32 million data points and open your statistical software, we have these online tools that you can also use to access the data, graph your country, look at the indicators you want, the indices you want. And on that note, let me say thank you for listening and look forward to uh, the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Thank you very, very much, Stefan. As uh, Dr. Stefan mentioned, I had to say it, uh, we will have Q&A in a moment. Uh, Just a couple of announcements. This is the second to the last convocation for fall term. Next week, our last convocation will be Dr. Eric Jolly. Dr. Eric Jolly is the president and CEO of the St. Paul and Minnesota Foundation, an organization working to create an equitable, just, and vibrant Minnesota where all communities and people thrive. Before joining the foundation, Dr. Jolly worked as president of the Science Museum of Minnesota for a decade. His title is Weaving Our Stories, A Demonstration of the Art of Cherokee Basket Weaving, and it will be very, very interesting. Uh, We will have the, if you RSVP'd for lunch, we look forward to seeing you. Lunch will not be at the AGH. It will be at Great Hall. If you did not RSVP for lunch, yes, we have a few seats at the table. Please come see me afterwards. We would love to have you join the conversation and join in the lunch. And on that, let's open up for questions. Comments. Oh my goodness, up go the hands. I believe yours was first by a smidge.
1: I was curious to hear what your definition of democracy is because clearly as that report you cited from China indicates the word can be bandied about pretty loosely. Um, And also how would China justify those statistics or are they just completely fabricated?
2: Thank you. Let's start from the back. With China, no, uh, we don't know how much, but we do know that a lot of people in China in the last 20, 30 years have gone from absolute poverty to sort of relatively better uh, economic conditions. So we know that, right? And then we also know that autocracies lie with their statistics, uh, and they do that much more than democracies, right? So it's also, when we do all kinds of statistical analysis and include autocracies, we always have to be aware that a lot of their statistics from their government statistical offices are um, tampered with, right? Um, but, but China has improved economically. I mean, that's, and, and, and it's spread to a large portion of the population to some extent. Right? And definition of democracy, so we have varieties of democracy. So we acknowledge different, but there is sort of a—not sort of—there is an agreement in the literature, and but also in practice, I would say, at the national level, uh, the core sort of of democracy that you cannot get away with without having um, what we call electoral democracy. You need to have these uh, clean, free and fair, and repeated elections, right? Um, So that uh, people can rule indirectly via their representatives, but also throw the rascals out as it were if uh, you're not happy with them, right? So the procedures for that need to be free and fair and then repeated over time. But then also that there needs to be an environment surrounding those elections that Make it possible for people to have, make informed choices. Uh, So free media, free civil society that can voice opinion and make, or try to convince you and so on, free, you know, political parties uh, and and that sort of thing. That's sort of the core that you can, then you can sort of add beyond that and say, okay, what the tradition in this country, for example, being inspired very much by the liberal tradition, emphasizing, okay, the electoral democracy is good, but it's, it's not enough unless it's constrained, right? Because we don't want the elected representatives or the majority to have this tyranny of the minority, right? So we want to constrain executive power, and therefore we need separate elections for the president and for the legislature, so the legislature can be independent of the president and act as a constraint, right? Uh, and we also want this strong judiciary to make sure the executive does not overstep the boundaries of constitutions and rule of law. Uh, has worked so-so in this country sometimes. But, um, uh, but that's a theory, right? Um, which, you know, is, is kind of very different if you go to the UK. Um, that's inspired by this majoritarian thinking of democracy, saying electoral democracy is good, but it's not enough in the sense that, you know, if you get too many political parties and nobody can form a majority, and then there's no agreement, and then nobody is ruling, the people is not ruling if there are no decisions taken. So we need to strengthen the executive, to make it emphasize governability, So then you still want these single-member districts, so you get a two-party system, but then um, parliamentary system, not no-president stuff, right? Only a parliament, because with the single-member districts, and um, you typically get then disproportional outcomes. So in England, typically with 40% of the votes, that party would get like 60% of the seats. The prime minister brings a bill to the House, it will pass every time. No questions asked, right? Um, so there are different versions, but, but, but when it boils down to it, it's, they are all based on that fundament of elections, freedom of expression, freedom of association together. Right? Um, the problem that I pointed to in the presentation with the disinformation is that it undermines that core. Think about it. I take the opportunity of your question now to make a point that I really matters. Think about it. If political leaders, surrounded by an uncontrolled, unregulated use of freedom of speech on social media and so on, they can lie about what they do and be believed. That vertical accountability that the elections are supposed to create is gone. We don't need elections anymore. They've been meaningless. You have in this country, the last pupil poll I saw, 63% of GOP supporters still think the elections were fraud with no evidence. To the January 6th Commission, I summarized that big argument in my, my testimony to them with this Democracy dies with the lies. Democracy dies with the lies. So that's the big challenge, I think.
1: Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. Um, So I know in some of your recent work you've asserted that um, autocratization is becoming more gradual than it had been like after the Cold War. And I was wondering if you still hold that to be true, even with the massive increase in coup d'etats in the Sahel region in Africa in recent years, um, and more instantaneous uh, declines in in democratic quality.
2: Yes, I still think it's true as a general trend, but the data says it's still true. So I don't, when it comes to that, I don't believe or think or speak about what the data says. The data says that autocratization in this third wave is still much more incremental, gradual, and takes time. It took Erdogan about 10 years to do away with democracy in Turkey, right? uh, About the same for Modi in India, who can go down the line. And it's still going on sort of gradually, incremental. Um, one norm after the other, one journalist after the other, one civil society organization after the other. Then my interpretation of the coups in West Africa, maybe you can throw Burma, Myanmar in there as well. And, and there has been an increase in the last few years, right? Not, um, my interpretation is more like, okay, so there are some actors now that have, feel less constrained, okay? um, So they can take more bold action. Uh, they are still a minority among the countries uh, the vast majority of countries still have this sort of more incremental process. And, and military coups are not at all yet, at least, dominant in the way they were in the 60s into the 70s, right? Um, but it's true that they've started to reappear in a way that we didn't expect. Now, a lot of them are in West Africa. West Africa has its own now current challenges with, uh, with terrorism, Al-Qaeda affiliated groups spreading across the Sahel, being supported from the Gulf countries. Um, and um, that, that development is really concerning. Um, and, and then you also have parts of the international drug traffic that have been going through places like Guinea increasingly and so on. So, so they're, they're contributing, I think, factors to what we're seeing in, in in West Africa. Uh, But the overall picture is still that we're facing this wave that is sort of chipping away um, of democracy.
0: And on that, I'm afraid that is actually our time for today. That doesn't mean it has to be the end of the conversation. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us for lunch. We'll keep talking. In the meantime, thank you very much, Stefan. Thank you all for being here. That concludes
2: today's convocation.